This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Josh Pomardi. Correct. <laughs> Welcome to Better Reading. I had to practice that, dear listeners, but I got that. So welcome. Wow, it's such an honour to be talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, a, it's an yeah. honour to be here. Uh, very often the people who talk about writing don't actually write themselves. So it's really good to be speaking with you. And I guess it's, you know, what, what, how does the saying go? You put your money where your mouth is, right? <laughs> is that what you'd say? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I try, try to, yeah. I, I mean, it's that funny thing, this, I guess, ties into that, that, you know, if you can't do teach, um, which is kind of, you know, I don't love that because teachers are so valuable, but also it's it's odd how many amazing writers there are that just are creative writing teachers um, now. So it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of, I guess, a similar thing. I love to talk about writing, love to talk about books, Um but I also like to actually write books um, mm. and like to read books as well. Mm. You know, people often ask me, and we'll get onto your introduction, but they often ask me, and just following on from what you're saying about teaching, are you ever going to write a book? Well, no, and for lots of reasons. One, I don't know the craft of writing, and two, you know, I don't have that idea. And I think that because everybody can write an email, there is an assumption that everybody can write. And I actually don't think that's true. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, I have these conversations um, often with aspiring writers about, uh, you know, uh, whether or not you're born a writer, which I think I, I very strongly disagree with that idea that there is some sort of form of genius inherent in uh, the act of creating in any arts, but particularly the narrative arts. I think so much of it is learned. I think um, there is an element, sorry, of, um, I guess, talent. You know, you can you can often spot someone who has a really great ear for dialogue or, you know, can really capture a setting and that can't necessarily be learned quite as much as some of the other elements of fiction or as writing. But um, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that there is a craft side to it. I think you need to learn. It, like it, playing the musical instrument, there is some people are better at playing the piano or the violin or whatever, but there is an element of natural talent. There is an element of learning and craft and there is an element of practice as well, isn't there, even to mm. writing? Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, it, someone went t- told me a while ago, and this was before I'd um, published my first novel. I think I was just sort of cutting my teeth with short stories and things like that. But it was just this really interesting uh, way of looking at writing and, and becoming a writer. And that was the idea of, uh, you know, a tennis player. If you, if there was someone that was naturally going to be good at tennis but had never practised, 
Um, to be a professional tennis player, they, it's just completely inconceivable. It's impossible. You know, everyone accepts and knows that. But then for some reason, often aspiring writers think, don't, don't think like that. They don't think I, I have to practice. They think they've got it in them naturally. Um, and of course, it's probably 5%, you know, natural raw talent and 95% work ethic and hard work and being prepared to sort of to learn, to being prepared to accept that you don't know it all or you don't have some inherent genius that overrides the, the rules of, of getting better and growing and the, the, the learning curve. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was such a brilliant analogy. And it also goes beyond that, that to be the best tennis player in the world, you have to have coaches. Even if you've got a great playing partner and you've, and the equivalent, I guess, in writing would be a writer's group or someone you send your writing to who gives you feedback. That's not often enough. I think you need um, a variety of voices to contribute to help you sort of see the weaknesses and strengths in your writing. And I think you also need to be the one that's helping others as well. I think that's equally as important to learn how to be critical and and how to edit um, mm. because you have to edit your own work. So and also yeah. there's storyline. There's uh, you know there's an arc to the story. And so many times I read you know because people send us so many manuscripts and you read them and there's just no. There's no plot, you know, there's no there's no arc. I'm going to bring this up today because the very talented and wonderful writer John Le Carre died this morning, you might have read. Mm, I saw that, yes. Yeah, and he has been, I've been a great fan of his work. I've, I've really um, enjoyed his writing over the years and I was at an event with him a few years back now. Um, he was here and I can't remember whether it's in Sydney or Melbourne, but anyway, it's one of those literally lunches and there were so many people, you know, 500, 600 people. And somebody asked him, what is the, I can't remember the question, what, maybe what is the secret to writing or how do you write? And he, he said, and I love this, and I've talked about this often over the years, he said there are two, two stories, you can, two types of stories. You can write a story that is the cat sat on the mat or you can write a story that is the cat sat on the dog's mat. And there you have suspense. And that has always been, to me, a really uh, clear, crisply way to describe plot. Yeah, I like that. I've never heard that, but I, I, I like that. And it's, you know, often the biggest ideas, when they're distilled down to these kind of, that they're so much more um, powerful and effective with communicating that, that message and the importance of, I think, plot and generating suspense and tension. Another one that, that reminds me of another one um, that's sort of similar uh, to describe the difference between story and, and plot in the same way is the king died and the queen died is a story. It's, it's sort of this linear, yeah. you know, it has a, I guess, a beginning and an end. Uh, and then the king died and the queen died of grief is is oh. plot. So, 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 so you oh, know. You just got me. <laughs> there's that cause and effect is that that relationship just kind of shifts a little bit. So I, I do, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's quite brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. He is brilliant. He's a brilliant writer. Very sad. I saw that news this morning and I said that, that's a great loss. But, you know, 89 years old, he's had a good life. Um, now, I am going to introduce you, Josh. <laughs> Josh is an award-winning writer who's, who has had work published in journals, including Mianjin, 
Kill Your Darlings, Takahi, is that right? Yep, correct. Takahi and Mascara Literary Review. He has hosted the On Writing podcast since 2015, featuring best-selling authors from around the globe. His first novel, Call Me Evie, was critically acclaimed and his second novel, In the Clearing, was also a critically acclaimed bestseller. His latest novel, Tell Me Lies, is a fast-paced psychological whodunit mystery that will leave listeners wondering if anyone can actually be trusted. Okay, so really successful. I mean, I think all three books have been quite successful, particularly the first one, Call Me Evie. I remember being a lot of hype around that. Talk to me about, because you obviously grew up in New Zealand, is that right? Mm, Talk to me about your journey to writing, but firstly, Talk to me about where you grew up and how you came to be in Melbourne. Yeah, sure, sure. So I, um, it's really interesting hearing, you know, now because I guess I'm three books and it's quite interesting to reflect upon how each book has been received and, and sort of what they represent in my writing journey, I suppose, because Call Me Evie is, is set in a place really close to where I grew up. It's a small beach town called Makatu. And, you know, when I was, when I was writing on that, I was drawing so often from my youth. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a crime novel. Um, and then when you talk about in the clearing that I think that's when I sort of, I, th- I felt like I knew how to write a novel and I had the freedom to completely invent. I wasn't sort of calling upon my own uh, experiences. I was just sort of doing research into these, this cult. And so, um, yeah, just, to, just a note on that. I think it, it is quite fascinating when, if we're talking about where I grew up and, and what it represents to me as a writer, Call Me Evie is was completely and entirely, you know, it grew out of this, these experiences I had in this small beach town. Um, and I grew up on a horse racing farm, essentially. Um, it was sort of a lifestyle block in, uh, in a place called Rotorua. In, um, it's a tourist town in, in the North Island of New Zealand. We're about probably half an hour out, out of the town, so it was quite a rural uh, upbringing. At my primary school, for instance, it, it was you know probably eighty percent of the kids there were the children of dairy farmers or, or farmers in general. Yeah, and, and it was a very monocultural experience for for a Maori kid to be at this primary school. That was you know, as I said, I think there was one other family that you would that identifiably um, Maori. So I grew up kind of almost in the insular environment, although my parents were typically working class. My mother was a nurse until she had four kids uh, and then she was just a mother. And um, my father, as I said, was a horse trainer, but he also had a small business. But we did grow up with the trappings of, of middle class in a sense. We had a, we always had a new car. It was a quite a, it was a beautiful like country house, um, two story. We had like a ladder between the bedrooms and trap doors and it was three stories. And it was just, I think, um, that sort of rural country grand, I guess would be how I would, I'd describe it. Um, and we grew up racing on motorbikes and riding horses and, um, not reading, um, which is, which is something people find kind of odd, I guess, about a writer who, really as a, as a fourth child, I think you're, you're not getting read to every night. Um, you know, if, if your dad's working full time, your mum's wrangling. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's just this thing of um, wrangling for, for kids that were, that and each in our own ways were really 
very challenging, very, you know, I, I, my mother passed away when I was 10, but I, I think oh, I'm sorry. often, mm. yeah, but I think often about how, how tough it, 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 now that I have one baby that I, I haven't slept in months, it feels like, you know, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine how tough it would be having, you know, these really, as I said, challenging, um, attention, hungry children. And I was number four. So I, I guess, you know, we were reading my baby book recently and I hadn't spoken a word until I think it was like 18 months or something. And so you you would have thought I was a late bloomer or um, possibly a little bit slow, you know, had had would end up having troubles with communicating. Then by the time I got to primary school, uh, I think I was that typical youngest kid. No one really messed with me because I had these older brothers and because the school was quite small, even I, I, I just every sort of athletic event and swimming event for some reason, it might have been the fact that we were on a very high, high protein. My dad uh, is the type of guy who has steak for breakfast and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, but for some reason, I really didn't do that well in terms of anything except athletics and and uh, like maths. I think reading comprehension was fine, but it was just. I didn't really, you know, get into books or reading that much at primary school. I was much more interested in playing rugby or, you know, running around. Uh, and then I guess I got, went from this tiny little small town rural school of 130 kids uh, to this intermediate school that was um, one, I was no longer the special Maori kid. I was, you know, it was predominantly a Maori setting um, and it was, a, um, I would say probably north of a thousand kids across two year levels. So all of a sudden I wasn't the fastest or the strongest or anything like that. Uh, I wasn't necessarily the smartest, although I still excelled at, at maths and, and a couple of other subjects. So I was in the accelerant class and accelerant program, but I was always getting kicked out of class and I was always a bit of a troublemaker. And then, yeah, I, I think it wasn't until almost the end of high school that I, that I began to excel at English. And I think it was just, it just took one great English teacher really. And I'd read the Harry Potter books as well. Um, and I know it's not really, it's, it's just one of those kind of sad things that, that JK Rowling is now. Um, I think she's, you know, her legacy has been tarnished a bit by some of her political views, but in saying that I, I, I owe my writing career in a sense too because that's the first series of books. How did you come to them? My auntie who lived in England used to always send me these random magazines that were only that weren't available in New Zealand, but they were like robots fighting. You know, it's like a it's like battle robots magazine. I'm like, this is kind of cool but really weird. Um, and so and she'd always send me, you know, a, a birthday present from the UK and uh, looking back to send a magazine I was probably extortionate rate for, for, you know, a three pound magazine probably. But um, she actually sent me for uh, an early birthday. I can't remember if it was 11 or 12, um, but when I was still really quite young, she sent me the first Harry Potter book. And I remember reading the first chapter at my grandma's house and then not reading it again or opening it again till I was probably 13 or 14, I think. And then by that stage, I think there was three or four books out. So I went back to and it was after I saw the movie, actually, I go, oh, okay, I'll see what this is about. And I went back and read and just from there, I got through 
I didn't watch any of the other movies, but I just ripped through and I was the one that, that as soon as the book came out, I'd get get it and read it. When I say I was the one, I was the one of, you know, probably tens of millions of kids that were doing the same thing, waiting anxiously for the next edition. I love that story. I love it because I have this theory that's never been tested or proven, but you've just proved some of it. I have this theory that because I grew up in publishing and working you know, in book retail and my career hasn't deviated actually. And so you have a very narrow view of reading. I feel as though sometimes I have, I'm just assuming that everybody knows when the new Richard Flanagan comes out, but you know, non-readers don't know that. So Mm. sometimes I have to kind of correct myself and remind myself that I need to speak to a wider audience. So I feel as though that when I talk about books and reading, I'm talking to a particular converted audience, right? But when there are books like Dan Brown, like The Da Vinci Code, Mm -hmm. like Harry Potter, like maybe Jaws back in its time, you know, those books, I think they break that community and they go beyond that and they introduce new readers to reading. Yeah. And we see it because of the sales and the, the say in the sales numbers, if you like. But also too, we pride ourselves, or even I pride myself in, you know, being an influencer and talking about reading. But really it's up to the story. And mm. when those books come out and they appeal to millions of more people than we ever speak to, that's when we bring in new readers. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is I think I'm a case of point or a living example of yeah. Uh, what happened? Yeah, because you know, like even at, the thing I found. So this is kind of a shift, and I, th- I think probably around the age of sixteen, seventeen. So, so something like until about that age, mathematics came very, very easily to me, and I was always in the the top maths classes, and I was, and I, I had to do almost no work to understand it. But as soon as it got to the point where you have to work to understand, where things are no longer base principles, you, you have to. Uh, research and understand formulas and then rely on your memory to recall them in exams and things like this. And as soon as it became work as opposed to just simple intuition and and to part it not only to excel, but just to pass exams, you had to do a lot more work. That's when I realized that I, it was just like kind of this reckoning, this, this, this moment where I go, I've neglected all the other subjects I've been studying because this came so easy and they those ones didn't. And I'm thinking about, so it's sixth form, which is year 11 in Australia. I think it was about that point in time where, yeah, that I had this really great English teacher and for some reason we just sort of connected and and she was getting me onto the right sorts of books or, or whatever. Even, you know, we did Richard III and even that I found interesting and she found a way to make it interesting. And then I realised well, if I'm having to work hard just to pass at maths, why, you know, maybe everyone else has always done this for English. Maybe that's why I didn't, it didn't come naturally, you know? So, so sort of this thing to say that, you know, when I mentioned Harry Potter, say that's why I became a writer in, in a sense, that's why I became a reader. It takes very special people, but also very special books to convert, to, to help people understand the power of, of, of reading and why books are important. Mm. And, as someone who's writing in crime fiction and there's been in recent times a real movement for towards crime novels having uh, often having social commentary um, I think this this has existed in the genre for a while but it's becoming 
much more common for, for popular books to also have this have social messaging integrated into the narrative. So when I think about the power of crime novels, because I always, in, in, a, in a sense, probably um, minimise the effect of my writing on on people, because I always say things like, "Oh, it's just crime. I'm just just a crime author. It's popcorn. It's entertainment. Whatever." And at the same time, I can acknowledge um, some of the themes present in in my work, but more so in some of the authors I really admire in the genre, and because of the how many readers there are in crime, you know, at this huge genre of avid readers and and growing and they have the potential to capture new audiences at holiday readers and airports and to still convey these really powerful social messages. I think it's important to acknowledge that element of it as well. If you are, we are capturing new readers um, and Harry Potter to some extent has, has elements of this as, as well, although probably less so than, books like Blacktop Wasteland and, and you know, these, these crime books that have a, a really clear kind of social, social, social message. Um, so I think it's also, as much as it's good to capture new readers, it's also important um, that popular fiction authors are also c- contributing in a positive sense to um, broader political and socioeconomic issues. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I think the role of writing has been that for a long time. You know, even when you need to read some of those rural romance, for instance, you know, we're seeing elements of um, climate change in those and all sorts of things. So tell me then how you came to be. Firstly, what did you write your first book in New Zealand or did you write it here? And tell me how you came to be in Melbourne. I, I wrote it in Australia. So call me the, the interesting thing about the actual writing process was I wanted to write about Melbourne, but I also wanted to write about Makitu, this place I was obsessed with. Um, and I often tell a story about, to, to put, give you an idea of what Makitu was like. We used to drive over there for surfing trips on the weekends, and there's a really uh, high concentration of Mungrumbar members, which is a big gang in New Zealand, and the, the race of gang affiliation in that town is probably as high as anywhere in New Zealand, like most people know or know someone or are involved with the mongrel mob. Um, and, but they're pretty harmless, you know, when you, when you go out, it's never the adults that were kind of scary to us. Um, it was always the kids. And I remember one time we went out there and we finished, had a serving trip and we we're just sort of leaving town. And there was four 16, 17 year olds in a, in a car with surfboards on the roof. And I just remember something sort of striking the windscreen, just like a, it was like a, and it kind of goes to fright. Like, oh. And then something else like hit the car and we 
like what's going on. We sort of looked up on a hill nearby and there were these kids. They wouldn't have been any older than probably 12 or 13. So much younger than us, much smaller than us. And they were just throwing, throwing stones at the, the car. And so we slammed on the brakes and we all piled out of the car. And, and you know, the, the intention was just to scare them. We wanted them to run away. We probably wanted to chase them, um, knowing that if we did anything, their, their dads and uncles would probably beat the living hell out of us. But we just sort of wanted to, you know, to feel that. And so we all got out of the car, sort of slid off, you know, the shoulder road. And they, the thing is they didn't run or, or do anything. They just picked up some more stones and, and sort of started throwing them at us. And so it was this, you know, a horrible and terrifying thing. And that's what Makatu's sort of referenced to me was this kind of staunch insular community. But when you're inside and accepted into it, um, and we had, you know, we did meet um, people that lived out there and people that were really nice. And as I said, it was, the scariest people were actually tended to be the nicest with the facial tattoos and stuff. And the local chip shop was famously owned by a very high, uh, I think it, almost like the national leader of the mongrel mob, um, a very scary and powerful man. And, you know, famously he would only do cash only at his fish and chip shop because he couldn't get, you know, that he couldn't for some reason put money in the bank because of his gang affiliations or whatever. So it was this, this kind of odd thing. And so I, when I talked to my publisher about this town, it, it was sort of, you know, fascinating to them as well that this exists alongside very close to other, you know, towns and, and cities in New Zealand that are really kind of parallel to, to Melbourne in many, many ways, quite metropolitan places. So um, it was, yeah, it, and it's also on the road to nowhere Makatu. So I sort of had this idea when I was living in Melbourne to as a sort of to as an homage in a sense or to, to honor this place that, it, that was so significant to my life and we spent so many weekends out there and so I sort of thought what would happen if I took uh, inner city Melbourne young woman and, and dumped her in Makatu what what would the reaction be like and the interactions with the locals and those exchanges that are that are ambiguous but often friendly um, and this is a very New Zealand custom to not give any greeting, but to simply raise your eyebrows as you pass someone mm. um, or nod your head back, you know. And I thought that in many ways for people outside of the area would almost be a threatening gesture, you know. So, mm. so there's just this sort of communication that's quite taciturn and quite, as I said, ambiguous. Um, and the first time I took my wife there who grew up in Australia, she found it quite, she was very, you know, intimidated by the, by the place and by the, by the people there. And it was just, I thought, how can I play on, you know, the way she interacts with the locals to show multiple possible um, explanations for these interactions and how they how they play out. And this friendliness and over-friendliness is often, you know, for many people creepy, but it's totally normal in small town New Zealand. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was the journey with that book was just, as I said, splicing these two ideas together. And I thought if I put this character there, and I made her very obviously an outsider. And so I, so I shaved her head the first thing that happens when she arrives. So there's no escaping, you know, the, the, there's a, I think if there's a new person in town, it's very obvious. But if there's a new person and she's a young woman with a shaved head who's very visibly uh, other, you know, to this area, then she's going to get extra attention. And how does that heighten the sort of creepiness of the of the place? And how did you get first get published? Talk to me about that process. Yeah, so so I had a pretty pragmatic approach, and I, and again, when people ask me for advice, I always say you, you have to sort of pay your dues in some mm-hmm. sense to 
developing your craft as as a short story writer is, I think, the best thing you t- can do. You, you're going to learn so much more writing 100 short stories than you will, you know, three novels. Um, mm. So and just in terms at a sentence level, but also structuring a story and creating tension and little, you know, characters and scenes. Um, so I thought, well, I'm not going to even bother trying to get published until I can get short stories and reviews and articles and things published. So I had a few short stories published. I think a big breakthrough was the Mianjin mm. um, short story. And I call that practice. That's the practice side of things, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And it's, But it's also an odd thing happens for every writer at one point. And if you're as sort of, you know, self-assured as I was about my own writing at certain stages, you need these sort of reality checks so you know where you're at. Because I think at, at, at a certain point in every writer's development, they realise they've gotten better. Mm. It's the, fir- the first time that happens, it's, it's like a miracle. And what I mean is you because you can't you're so close to it you can't you can't know you've grown as a writer and then so and then when you realize that back then you didn't know how bad you were say you know and then you see that your writing is markedly better and so as when the first time that happens you go well how can I know that I'm not still crap but just less crap and so for me when I realize that I go well I need external validation on on the, the, my work before I can sort of know where I'm at. So the first time you get a personalized rejection letter, I mean, it's cliche to talk about because everyone's like celebrates this moment of someone acknowledging that they read the, the short story. And although it wasn't for them, they saw merit in it. So when you get that feedback, it's, it's huge and really important. So I did all that and I kept pitching for short stories and for articles and submitting and took and just took on, some articles that I knew I couldn't, it would take a lot of work to get anywhere near right. And sometimes a, a pitch was accepted, but the article wasn't. And um, and even that sort of felt like a win as well, because it showed that my idea was was good, but my execution was off. So, I, and then I had other articles published. I think uh, literary magazines like Kill Youngs have have published a couple of things of mine, but they've without them, you know, that's another uh, another reason why so many authors will argue for more arts funding because, oh, absolutely. you know, like I, I perhaps now I am a positive net influence on the economy because of, you know, mm. some sort of commercial economic activity um, from my work. And that only came about because I, I was engaged in this very fertile ground that is these lit magazines. And so without them, this, you know, and, and this is purely in a, if I would argue for, arts funding in a neoliberal sort of sense, and that's the only way we seem to get things done, there is a real argument for for writers to grow in that space and then to, you know, be creating these things that are that are selling and, as I said, contributing in a, in a meaningful way to the economy if we have to argue in that sense, not to mention all the other, you know, um, inherent benefits and, and gains and positive um, outcomes of just having an active, thriving arts centre uh, and also when you think about it, you know, the, the, the existence of who we are is based on story. Yeah, correct. We have to exactly. Nurture that and we have to invest in that and we have to make sure that story keeps happening, you know, yeah. whether it's story in the form of book or a story in the form of music or story in the form of dance. It's crazy to not well, even it's like it it's, a, it's really yeah. soulless to, yeah. to not have a thriving active arts. You know, if you think if if you think about periods of in history, success was always marked by 
artistic expression, you know, as much as engineering and, and other things, all of these things were sort of born out of these thriving artistic hubs, these, these places, um, you know, like the Renaissance period. And, Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and so without that, you know, I, I feel like just general creativity suffers as well. So, so even in a, again, if we are sort of subscribing to the current model of judging everything's worth by how much it contributes to the economy or whatever, even in that regard, to, people who are happier are going to have more output, you know, it's, it's, it's really simple. And I think arts, particularly this year has proven how important arts are to the general, you know, mental health, well-being, and happiness of, of the population. So I think we need to continue to nurture that. Oh, look, um, and you know, if you look at the book industry and uh, I don't want to get off topic here, but you know, it's been buoyant in the last couple of months because people have taken solace in reading. I mean, this is what people need when they're not feeling quite right. They need the uh, the pleasure and the escapism and the empathy and whatever reading gives you, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And it's it is it it does create empathy. It allows you to to inhabit absolutely. another another person's experience, and that's the the best way to to sort of develop uh, empathy. So yeah, it's I think it's endlessly important. Mm. Um, but yeah, just back to that. Yeah, back to how you got published. <laughs> so, so you know that that's so obviously you know that's the importance of literary magazines mm. um, for, for the progress and development of of young writer or even just broad odd category of emerging writer. Um, without without literary organisations and magazines and without the support of art funding to keep those going, there's then I wouldn't be writing books right now. I can say that for certain, as certain as I can say, if I hadn't read Harry Potter, I wouldn't have been writing books and if I hadn't discovered Kurt Vonnegut I wouldn't be writing yeah. writing books so yeah there are really significant milestones in, a, in, a, in my progress anyway and I'd say this would be typical of um, certainly most literary writers but also just most many writers the, the progress would be pretty typical in that they would it might be having articles published in a surfing magazine or having a short story picked up or winning a short story composition or, and then when you do have that validation, when you understand and um, and realise you have grown and developed as a writer that people want to read your work, that's when I thought I'm ready to tackle the novel. And and even that, you're learning to write a novel as you go and you still need so much important support. You need this, uh, I guess, like this kind of infrastructure, like this sort of scaffolding network around you um, of people to, to support you. And that could be, uh, you know, like my wife and, and my family, uh, that could be economic support. That could be um, just sort of a writer's group. But you still need these things. It's not like you get your first short story published and you go, great, now I can write a novel because it's still so much hard work and you, you shouldn't do it alone. So I um, joined a writer's group. I did a few sort of workshops. Um, I did a masterclass with a, a gentleman called Anthony Yuck um, down here in, in Melbourne. So he does. he's got a sort of program that... I don't know how many published authors have been through this sort of five-day masterclass, but essentially he gets together a whole bunch of writers who are sort of on the cusp of having novels or, or longer stuff published and gets them together and they workshop together. And it's so it just was like, it just turbocharged my mm. my sort of career trajectory from there because, you know, I met some incredible writers. We're all writing different things but then I was getting this extraordinarily high value feedback from really qualified sources because there were published authors in the group even mm-hmm. but there were also you know there were 
there were people that were so incredibly well read. There were there were people that were were amazing writers that were sort of you know wrangling with their own manuscripts and trying to find a place in the market to, to or, or approaching agents and stuff like this. So it was just this great kind of network. And so yeah, from there I when I thought I had a decent manuscript, I approached an agent, the, my dream agent, um, who um, had just come back from maternity leave. So I kind of accidentally and and you'll find you know there's so much luck involved and stuff like this as well of course but it just happened to time perfectly that she came back from maternity leave and she was happy to read my my work so I queried queried hers in a very basic query letter I heard back eventually she requested more of my more of the manuscript she said it needs a lot of work but potentially you know go away and have work on and come back to me and I did that and this process took about nine months I think of just back and forth and it was, I was giddy every time I got an email from her and um, it was a really exciting time and then when she thought it was ready she goes okay cool we'll um, we'll go out with it now I'll you know I'll take you on and sign and then she goes great I think we'll go out with it and um, yeah and she sent it out to her contacts which is a which is what's so brilliant about um, agents is they get you straight to the top of the reading pile for many publishers. And they also find the publishers that they think might be interested or might like the manuscript instead of... Well, and also too, because they're in the business of business and writers are in the business of writing. You know, I I think it's always very wise if you can to get an agent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's less important in Australia than say the UK and the US, but I still think um, particularly if you are writing the sort of stuff I'm writing, I think it is really, really important to have representation because... You, you're, you're just constantly negotiating and constantly, you know, if, you, in the, if you're lucky enough to have a multiple book contract, you want to sort of understand it inside and out and you also want to understand what your commitments are. And Pippa, my agent, just took my hand and walked me through that. And how, and, and so essentially we had offers from a number of publishers um, and it's that really exciting, you know, auction thing that happens sometimes. And so, yeah, we, we ended up having to go through that, you know, weighing the, you know, the benefits of certain publishers and so on and so forth. And I it landed with um, Hachette in the end and was very, very, very happy uh, that I did. And I think they did a wonderful, wonderful job. They well. did indeed. Yeah. Congratulations. Okay. We've run out of time, but um, I've really enjoyed my chat with you. We're up to the new book. It's called Tell Me Lies um, and it's definitely out now. I just quickly want to ask you the difference between writing your first and your third. Yeah, good good question. Well, uh, what I would say is that cliche of you learn to write every time you write a new novel, novel it's like you're learning to write a novel again. So the, the, no two have been the same for me at all. And the one I'm currently working on, which is number four, has been a couple of years in the making and just completely sort of soul crushingly difficult. And, but this one, tell me lies was, um, so the difference between tell me lies and call me Evie was call me Evie. I didn't know what I was working on at all the whole time. And I'm sort of blind and you're just really feeling your way through the process with tell me lies. I knew the whole story before I started. It's, it's a bit shorter. So I knew exactly what was happening and I, and I, it was so completely fully imagined before I even set the first word down, that it was this magical thing of racing to get the ideas on the page before they evaporated. And then the craft came second. So it wasn't, it was the opposite to Evie where I was tr- I was really sweating over every single word and sentence and had no idea where the story was going when I set out to write. Whereas Tell Me Lies, 
wasn't necessarily plotted in a sense. I didn't have any post-it notes in the wall or a big map, you know, with string linking characters or anything like that. I just had a very strong sense of who my main character was, what needed to happen and where the story ends. And the story just naturally filled itself out from there. Well, Josh, keep writing because <laughs> we're enjoying it. The reader is enjoying it. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's been really fun. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.